Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are bringing you another Immigration Nerd Spotlight, EIG's Women in the Law. This August, Erickson Immigration Group hosted a very special Women in the Law event with Betsy Fisher, the U.S. Director of Talent Beyond Boundaries. The conversation between Betsy and EIG partner Hiba Mona Anbur shines a light on building coalitions to remove obstacles that refugees face in accessing pathways like employment-based visas and family reunification, and how Talent Beyond Boundaries is working to match refugees with U.S. employers in need of their skills. But first, we'll get everyone up to speed with a roundup of the immigration news that we should all be aware of. Back with us today, our news nerd-in-chief, Ericsson Immigration Group partner, Rob Taylor. Hey, Rob. Hey, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. What is topping the list this week? Yeah, we have a few different things, um, a couple that we've touched on recently. So they're kind of updates and then a couple new things. So I think probably where we'll start is on July the 31st, USCIS conducted a second round of the H-1B lottery. So those new selections that were taken in the lottery are eligible for filing as of August the 1st and will be accepted until August the 31st. So you might recall, we actually predicted this back in April, I believe, that there would probably be a second round due to the large number of initial registrations with the H-1B lottery cap. And so this has come to fruition. Uh, It's very good news for a lot of our clients who have now had employees of theirs selected in the lottery and will be eligible for an H-1B petition. It's not such good news for maybe individuals who might have been trying to abuse the H-1B registration process as USCIS has announced that they will be investigating both individuals and companies who might have submitted multiple registrations in an attempt to increase their chances of selection. So we'll see how USCIS handles this moving forward. But for now, it's good news for our clients. Additionally, just released this month was the September Visa Bulletin. As we've mentioned before, this is a monthly bulletin that's released by the Department of State. It lets individuals who are applying for green cards know how long they'll have to wait till they'll get their green card. Uh, In September, there was really little movement. However, in October, that will be the start of the new fiscal year and new visas will become available. And we do expect there'll probably be some pretty significant movement in the EB1 category, but EB2 and EB3 are likely to stay pretty similar with just marginal increases. The Visa Bulletin has definitely been something we've spoken about on this podcast, as well as EIG's LinkedIn Live, and we will be staying tuned for the October Visa Bulletin to see what we've predicted comes to fruition. Yes, we will. I think we have heard recently that there uh, have been rumors of movement beyond the EB1 category, but everything that we're seeing and hearing indicates that it will only be in the EB1 category. 
Uh, and then another topic, which uh, is something that you and I have been dealing with quite a bit lately, is the I-9. So first, I think just a reminder that as of August the 30th, there is a requirement for any I-9 that was completed during COVID virtually to be remediated, which means that the documents that were presented virtually now need to be re-inspected. If a company is an E-Verify employer, they can do that in person or they can actually do it virtually still. For non-E-Verify employers, the physical review has to actually occur in person. But there was just an announcement on August the 3rd, I believe, that DHS may pilot a program for non-E-Verify employers that would also allow them to remotely examine documents. That new proposal is currently in the comment period, and we'll see how it turns out, but it'll likely be accepted and approved and could very well go into effect before the end of the year. Um, I mean, I think all of this really is important in the sense that we're, we're kind of in a new time where we have a new workforce, specifically remote workers, and DHS's attempt to kind of modernize the I-9 by allowing for remote I-9 verification is really an important step in that process. And I think it's a positive step to see the government reacting to what is the reality post-COVID, uh, particularly within the I-9. So stay tuned for more either on the podcast or through our EIG LinkedIn Lives. Rob, before I let you go, in what is becoming quite a tradition for Ericsson Immigration Group, we have received another recognition for really the incredible work that EIG does and the incredible team that is EIG. Can you share the latest recognition we've received? Sure. Well, I think as background, it might be important to call out. So Ericsson Immigration has been practicing immigration for over 20 years now, and we have a history of providing great service, and, and that's kind of what we're focused on. We've been very fortunate over the last probably five to 10 years to grow at a pretty uh, exponential rate and become one of the largest and most well-known immigration law firms in the country. And so we're now proud to announce that Ericsson Immigration Group was selected as part of the 2023 Inc. 5000. And so that's specifically a list of the fastest growing companies in America. So this is a pretty great accomplishment for us. Uh, you know, we're we're a standalone immigration law firm and we, you know, built ourselves from the ground up and it's really just been based on hard work, dedication to our clients and a great team of folks that come to work every day to help foreign nationals achieve their dreams here in the US. So we're super proud of this and honored to be named and I look forward to continue to grow and continue to provide great immigration service. It's truly fantastic to see EIG not only known but recognized recognized for our signature Perfect Plus service. So congratulations to the EIG team. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Rob. And now for our Immigration Nerd Spotlight, EIG's Women in the Law. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast, Ericsson Immigration Partner, Hiba Unver. Hey, Hiba. Hi, Lauren. It's so good to be back and it's so good to see you. Heba, you conducted the interview we're about to hear with Betsy Fisher, the U.S. Director of Talent Beyond Boundaries. Betsy's career experience, dedication, and passion really came through in the conversation. Can you tell everyone listening about Betsy and why you chose her for this EIG Women in the Law event? Yeah, absolutely. So I came across this organization, Talent Beyond Boundaries, in a LinkedIn post, and I was immediately fascinated with the work that this organization does and the support and resources that it provides refugees around the world. And then through my research of the organization, I met Betsy. And a few months after meeting Betsy, I actually had an opportunity to hear her speak at a conference. 
And she was one of the most inspiring and compelling women that I have met in a very, very long time. And as you know, my objective with EIG's Women in the Law Group is always to find really, really inspiring women in the legal profession who can come and talk to our firm, who can come and share their experience and their stories and tell us about the work that they do. And Betsy really, really fit the bill. So that was basically the impetus for the conversation. And in terms of the conversation itself, I started by asking Betsy to detail the mission of Talent Beyond Boundaries and who it helps and who it's helped in the past. We just launched um, our U.S. team uh, last fall. So we're, we're very new here. Uh, we have been connecting refugees with employers in Australia, Canada, uh, and UK for um, a, a much more substantial period of time. So a little bit about our work. The process starts for a refugee when they hear about our work and register themselves on an open source platform that we maintain called the Talent Catalog. That catalog currently has supported many thousands of people to register across all areas of experience. Um, and from that database, when an employer calls us and says, you know, we really want to hire someone through your program. We go to the talent catalog and we find um, refugees who have the appropriate skills and we support those people who align well with the employer's needs to update their CV if needed, to prep for a job interview if needed. So we support both sides through the application process. We ask the employer to undergo their standard hiring process and just to understand that there might be some situations that need a little bit of understanding. Somebody might have a hard time getting internet access and need some support from us to, to coordinate that that time. But we're, we're not asking businesses to think about this as philanthropy or charity. We're asking businesses to think about this as a talent pool to supplement all of their other talent pools and, and the other places they would go when they have uh, a hiring need. Uh, so among the roles that we uh, fill, we've supported people to fill management consulting roles, engineering roles, Lots and lots of registered nurses in the United Kingdom, lots of people in other healthcare support roles, and um, really runs the whole range. Um, in Canada, we found that um, mid-sized towns have a real need for skilled trades, and they have an immigration system that supports people to relocate to fill those needs as well. So um, really across what we would think of as blue-collar and white-collar roles, and now in, in several countries um, where people have relocated to as well. So that is amazing. Um, and I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the work specifically in Talent Beyond Boundaries, but I want to give the folks um, an opportunity to get to know you a bit better. Uh, you had mentioned that you were studying in Jordan and you had some experiences in observing, you know, refugees who were there who had been displaced and some of their challenges. Is this what also led you to apply specifically to law school? Or did you have this experience after you graduated from law school? Yeah, this was why I, I went to law school. I think okay. um, I, I also teach um, like Hiba. I uh, have yeah. to join being an, an adjunct faculty member. And I tell my students that there is nothing wrong with changing your mind. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. But this actually was um, a huge part of why I was interested in law school and um, what I studied while I was in law school. I think the other reason of why law school is that I graduated in the middle of the Great Recession and having some sort of graduate interest seemed like a good idea at the time. But the what I what I did while I was in law school and uh, what I was hoping to do when I finished was um, to to support refugees and relocation processes. 
And then once you graduated law school, you went directly to the kind of refugee support role as opposed to maybe like working for like a corporate firm or big law or anything like that, right? Right. Yeah. I, I went on staff with the now International Refugee Assistance Project. I, I lived and worked in Jordan again as a staff attorney as uh, my first post-law school role. So from the time that you started law school to the time that you got your first job, I'm curious to know what your experience was just being a woman in the legal profession, you know, were there instances where you felt either you were at a disadvantage because you were a woman or perhaps you were being treated differently because you are a female in the legal profession? I think you and I are kind of like mostly from the same generation. So there was not as much conversation around some of the biases that women faced back then you know, so to speak. So really curious to hear about what your experience was in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of opportunities. I think two things have made a, a huge difference in my career and legal studies. One, I attended Michigan Law School and Michigan had, and I believe has a program called the Michigan Access Program, which is an opportunity a few days before 1L for a group of students to come together and to talk about bias and discrimination and what that looks like in law and in law school. And I think that prepared me with a, a group of friends from a, a huge range of backgrounds, but also with tools to identify and to interrupt bias. And that's not saying that I was a perfect ally at all moments, but I think having that presented to me early on allowed me to think in advance about what those things would look like and to feel comfortable saying like, if I'm the only woman in the room, like why am I the one taking notes, right? So I think that was a really important tool that I was equipped with. Um, shout out to Christine Gregory, the associate dean who ran the program at the time. And then another is that I've, I've worked at two international nonprofits, both led by women and by people who happen to be um, working parents as well. And I think that when people in the nonprofit world, I think female leadership is much more common but, you know, working in a place where it's sort of assumed that we'll have a flexible schedule, that if I have a doctor's appointment or I need to do something to help my family, that that's something that everyone's going to work with. I think just the, the cultural norms there um, are, are great. And, you know, we know that culture can be set well by people of any background. But I think um, I feel very fortunate to have worked at, at nonprofits led by, by women who provide um, those opportunities. So what's interesting, I think, about your situation is that you, as just as you just described, uh, coming from this nonprofit world where you may not necessarily have faced the same situation that other women in the classic corporate sector may have faced, um, are still in a situation because of your profession where you're required to liaise with company representatives because you're working on behalf of these refugees and helping them find gainful employment. And that requires, you know, presentation and it requires perhaps in some um, instances, not salesmanship, but, you know, informing and convincing. Have there ever been instances in that sort of a situation in which you feel like maybe you're not being heard? Um, and I don't want to make it sound like it's a leading question, but, you know, just kind of curious as to like what your experience has been because you do have a foot in two worlds, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think it has been um, with external partners where I've had those experiences of like, I, I just said that, or, you know, again, the like being asked to do the sort of administrative work, um, which is important and vital and also really not my strength. 
So to all of those of you who keep the people around you moving, um, your your work is incredibly important. So I think it has been with external partners where those sorts of experiences happen. But uh, you know, I, I think coming from an organization where that's not the norm, I think there's a huge benefit to being able to to recognize those things and to know when that occurs and to, to recognize it and, and to to feel um, affirmed. So how do you kind of coach yourself in, you know, providing yourself with that affirmation if you do happen to encounter it? Because that's not always easy. Mm-hmm. I think having having partners in the work, you know, I'm usually in a position where I'm working with other people in my organization closely. And one thing I try to do is to tell people when they're doing really well. You know, I expect people who work with me, whether they're my supervisor or my direct report, you know, to to be giving me feedback. And I think when we're on calls externally to be able to say, like, you handled that really well. And also I noticed this thing that this external partner did and, and that wasn't great. And I thought you handled it well, or, um, you know, I, I tried to intervene in this way, let me know if that was supportive. So I think having people around us to affirm us and affirm our experiences um, is, is really vital. Are there any... Um... Are there any challenges that you face because of like your own internal dialogue? So um, the context to that question is, you know, we we being women are known for struggling with imposter syndrome uh, yeah. a, a little bit more so than men. I think everybody struggles with it from time to time. So I'm not necessarily buying into the stereotype, but I think most people assume that um women struggle with it more but as a woman i can speak to my own experience where sometimes i feel like i'm harder on myself and in some instances unnecessarily right Mm -hmm. and everyone around me is like it's really not that big of a deal and so do you ever encounter that sort of an experience where it's more about what you're telling yourself or what you're doing to yourself as opposed to maybe like what you're experiencing from outsiders yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I think I noticed this with myself um, in new areas of work. Like I, I think in the stuff that I do every day, I, I tend to feel pretty confident. Um, and, and I know not everyone has that experience, but I think, you know, things like anxiety is, is not something that I typically experience on on a great level, which I feel very fortunate for. But um, I think in a, in a new space where it's something maybe I haven't done before, a new group of people thinking, do I know what I'm doing? Will these people be receptive to this new message? Like those are, that's where I sort of feel the, the doubt creeping in. So I, I definitely relate to that. And I think, you know, going into a new environment as, you know, a college student or as a law student, when that's not, um, yeah, I didn't meet a lawyer until I was in college and volunteering at a, a legal aid organization um, through the, the volunteer organization at, at my college. Um, so I think, uh, feeling confident in those new environments uh, always takes always takes a moment, at least. Do you ever get approached by a newer and younger generation of attorneys seeking your guidance and mentorship? And if so, what is the mentorship that you provide to them? Yeah, especially as uh, now a, a leader in a nonprofit space, but also as a teacher, I have a lot of questions about career advice or, you know, succeeding in work or even just kind of what areas of the law are a good idea to pursue with a given set of interests. I think with students, there's often a lot of confidence about 
taking up space in the classroom and, and speaking up in the classroom. And so in that environment, I try hard to just make a supportive environment where, you know, I, I uh, do call on people. I do expect broad participation. But if someone's struggling, I'm just going to move on. You know, some days you just have your mind goes blank or maybe something happened and you didn't catch that paragraph, you know, but whatever it is, I'm just going to move on. Um, and I think I try to take the same approach, particularly for people I'm supervising and, and working with on a regular basis is like just making space to ask questions and to make mistakes, but also to encourage everyone to to just like step up and lead and own the work that they, that they know best. Um, because I'll tell you as the supervisor of a team, um, I really only know what I do and I have to you know, rely on the rest of the team to to do what they do to the best of their ability as well. You know, I was actually having this conversation yesterday with a colleague where um, she and I were discussing how everything about our upbringing is diametrically opposed to the skills required to make it in the profession that we're in, in the environment that we're in. And we were talking about how we were raised to be very, very polite and very, very overly respectful and definitely very deferential to folks that were older and whatnot. And that ends up being the antithesis of the extra effort that, you know, women have to put forward in order to be taken seriously in a profession that has historically been male dominated. And so I'm curious as to whether there was anything about your background and upbringing. You mentioned that you were from a working class family from the Midwest. If there were any you know, traditional values that felt like they were either holding you back or maybe um, not necessarily interfering with, but also opposed to what you needed to do in order to be able to be successful in your world. Yeah, I, I think it, it really cuts both ways. So I, I think I definitely was raised to be more more deferential. But I also think that like being a polite and congenial person can can really be a, a huge asset on um, whether it's like networking with clients or, um, you know, I, I know for civil litigators, like one of the biggest rules is like be a good person to all of the court staff because those people have a huge amount of influence, but but also like not just because it impacts your case, but also just like being a nice person. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, thinking about like different experiences, you know, where some colleagues may have spent their high school summers like interning or going to math camp or something, you know, um, I worked, I, I did a lot of those things too. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, uh, but I also like worked at a fast food restaurant. And I think that that is extremely helpful. Like I, I know that some of my managers were some of the smart, smartest people I've worked with. I know that um, I know how to work hard. Um, I've also seen things like processes, like how do we figure out, like we have a bus of people and we have to get them through, like how are we going to staff to like get through the next hour? Like I, I think all of those things are actually really valuable. And, and I think that's sort of as we move on, your careers thinking about um, maybe disadvantages and how to reframe them as advantages and how I like actually authentically use the word folks sometimes. Um, is that ever charming? I don't know, but um, hopefully some of the, some of the, the Midwestern nice um, maybe on occasion place to my advantage. At ERG, we're okay with using the term folks. That, okay. that gets used from time to time, so that part's okay. Um, 
And then, you know, just based on your experiences, if you could summarize or explain what the significance and importance of diversity is to the legal profession in particular, from your vantage point, what would you say? Right. I think, um, you know, having people in the room who have had a, a huge variety of experiences, um, I think all of the data shows that people from a wide variety of backgrounds come to better outcomes um, very consistently. I think we know the importance for future generations of being able to to see people like them, of having mentorship, um, and you know, diversity being just the first step. Being in the room is one thing. Um, we know that the legal profession has gotten better, which is not to say good, but better at getting people in the room, and is still um, pretty abjectly terrible at keeping people in the room. Um, when we look at levels of um, you know government. When we look at law firms, when we look even at, at um, in the nonprofit space, um, you know there continues to be drop-offs in um, leadership from women, people of color, queer people, um, people with disabilities, um, all of whom face obstacles um, uh, to participating. So uh, there's a, a huge way to go, but I think being able in, in my world, um, uh, you know, having people with language skills. Um, uh, we can have, you know, 30 of the best lawyers in the room, but if the only language anyone speaks is English, we're going to have um, a, a very uh, hard time getting there. So there are, you know, uh, all sorts of reasons why we need to be um, thinking hard about um, about fixing the profession to be more inclusive. So now um, I want to bring it back to Talent Beyond Boundaries. Um, you've had an opportunity to work with, you know, uh, refugees from pretty much all over the world. And I know that you've been personally involved in helping them seek and obtain gainful employment in various different countries around the world. Based on all of the people that you've worked with, based on uh, your experience with all of the people that you've helped, are there any challenges that are more specific to women refugees more so than men and if so what are they so i i think there are expectations about who will be working as like the primary breadwinner in a family in, in um probably all parts of the world certainly including this one um so so that can impact having people who feel supported by their their families in in working we know that that, that can be a challenge from our perspective, I'm, tr I'm trying to think from, you know, we're um, not just finding um, employment, but also navigating through the immigration process. And I think there, I, I'm not immediately coming up with like additional challenges that, that women face in the program, but we know that people who are experiencing conflict, displacement, and violence, um, who are women, queer people, people with disabilities, um, disproportionately face violence, hardship, discrimination, harassment, poverty, all of those things. What about in terms of getting settled in the new country, you know, once you've kind of assisted them with everything from like immigration to employment, um, any maybe challenges with respect to what happens afterwards, you know? Yeah. Uh, one thing, you know, one thing that was coming to mind was um, in a classic sense, if you're talking about folks from parts of the world that are a bit more traditional in their thought i feel like the default is going to be well we need to do what you know 
we need to do what we need to do in order to support the the dad getting the job or the husband or the man getting the job. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the wife, the female, is not as highly skilled, capable, educated, and, you know, maybe wanting to, you know, get settled and also start a career for herself so that she can contribute to, like, you know, the, the, the future of her family. Um, is there any sort of a disparity that you ever see in the in the settling in part of the experience? Yeah. I, I think one um, one thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how to support the family that's relocating. So we have like a in the primary applicant, employee, the worker who is relocating, and in some ways they have, um, you know, obviously lots more challenges, lots more stress to like you know figure that figure that out make the the job work um there are also real challenges for the family so um it, it's not uncommon that um only the the worker the primary applicant who wins not always but most often um the man who you know who speaks english and then who has this way of connecting in the community through the job um, so I think it's possible some of you on the call have had the experience of moving with a family member, a parent, a spouse, um, or work and finding it hard to adjust to a new town, a new country, even, um, I'm sure you had this from clients, you're an immigration firm. Um, so I think all of those challenges apply for refugees with additional challenges of, you know, by definition, we're talking about a new country. In some situations, we're talking about not having employment authorization. There are often language barriers, and then often refugees have faced significant trauma as well. So those are definitely concerns that we think about how to provide services to ensure that this family succeeds, because ultimately, it's not just about helping an employer, not just about filling a job. It's about helping a refugee find what we call a durable solution, a way to resolve their displacement by accessing safety and legal legal residence in perpetuity. So of all of the experiences that you've had, is there any one particular story that really touched you that still kind of stays with you uh, in terms of someone that you worked with? Uh, so um, there's there's many, many stories. Uh, at, at my previous employer, I had the opportunity to assist an applicant from Afghanistan um, in an application to relocate to the U.S. again based on employment, the U.S. military. And this is not a case that I remember all that vividly, not a case that I, um, you know, sometimes I think as an immigration lawyer, you'll be like, oh, it was that guy, like the whatever. And or maybe like the application is like totally smooth, but then it turns out that there's like a parrot and it's very important to help the parrot relocate. And all of a sudden you're a pet immigration lawyer too, right? Um this wasn't one of those cases. Like I didn't have like a, a huge recollection, but I got an email just a few months ago, earlier this year from him just to say thank you, like nothing else. And he sent um, a photo of his kids, three girls who, you know, if they hadn't been able to relocate would be, you know, either, you know, refugees in Pakistan or in Afghanistan without the ability at the moment to, to go to school, um, to finish their education. And he was just saying, you know, I became a citizen. I'm trying to help my parents to relocate. So I think those, when you hear about the success after, those are really rewarding. I've also gotten to do a lot of policy work. And so previously working on legislation for people who had worked for the U.S. military and on refugee resettlement to work on administrative changes in various immigration processes. 
And um, I think those sometimes it's not an individual story, but if at the end of the day, there's, you know, 4,000 more visas for families who are displaced and who are in need. That's a lot of stories that you may never know, that I will never know. And that's really exciting. I've been really proud to be a pro bono volunteer with a group called United Stateless. Um, it's stateless people in the U.S., so people who have no citizenship. Um, and today, the Department of Homeland Security is um, announcing that they have adopted um, the international definition of statelessness and are going to consider statelessness as a as a factor in discretionary adjudications, which is the first time that there is an administrative acknowledgement that that statelessness is real. So that's a huge victory for this community of people that I you know believe in, support, and uh, and a, a piece of policy that I've been working on for a couple of years now. So it's, um, wow, that's really really exciting stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's huge. And we yeah, got to hear um, about it literally 10 minutes after it happened. Yeah, um, I'll send you the link. Please, please do drop it in the chat. That is amazing. Thank you for working towards that. Um, and I'm so happy to hear uh, that that happened. That's amazing. Um, and that's actually the perfect segue into my next question. I know that you and uh, Talent Beyond Boundaries has been really, really closely involved with pilot programs in countries such as Australia and Canada. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and what that involves and results in. Sure. So TBB has, you know, we're, we're working on doing the matching. Um, you know, we have the the talent catalog and all the employers, but we're also really focused on just working with governments to build programs that allow refugees to access employment-based visas. Um, and you're all um, particularly involved in immigration law, um, imagine someone who has, you know, a PhD in electrical engineering, but doesn't have a passport, um, or they have a PhD in engineering, but not, um, uh, but their marriage certificate was lost while they were fleeing from their country or, you know, any number of situations. So, um, we have worked with the governments of Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, and Canada to set up hybrid programs that, um, operate through employment-based pathways but have accommodations for the unique circumstances that refugees face. Um, so to, to um, drill a little bit deeper into the Canada program, the Economic Mobilities uh, Pathways Pilot, or EMPP, yeah. is a program that connects refugees um, with employers in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an economic program. Um, it expects people to meet the requirements of Canadian law and of the employer in question. Um, but there are flexibility um, on things like um, if someone's passport has expired, if they're missing a piece of documentation, things like that. There's just um, more flexibility. And we've been advocating for the U.S. government, for the administration to adopt flexibility in places where it would be possible to do so without legislation. What about the one in Australia? Is that similar? It is similar. Um, it's a smaller scale program, but the Australia program has a, a similar pilot that I believe last week was announced will continue beyond its initial two-year phase. And I don't know if you're allowed to tell us, and if you're not, that's fine, but are there any other countries that are on your radar in terms of expanding the sort of pilot program initiative? Yeah, so we have a, a program called Displaced Talent for Europe, where we're partnering with IOM, the International Organization for Migration, to expand um, in several countries in the EU. So initially, I believe, it's Portugal, Belgium, and Ireland with hopes of, of growing beyond that. Uh, we have a, a program with the United Kingdom as well, which has successfully supported, uh, most notably, a lot of registered nurses, but also people in other roles. 
their program is really exciting because people can enter before they relicense and then relicense as registered nurses. And so it's a very rapid processing time and ability to relocate. In the U.S., we are working on a pilot program through the Refugee Sponsorship, Private Sponsorship Initiative. Um, more details on that will be coming out soon. And so there's a lot of aspirations, but as you might imagine, it's really challenging work. And in the U.S., I really don't have to dwell on the details of why U.S. immigration law is so challenging, why employment-based visas specifically are so challenging to support refugees to relocate. It's slow and it's expensive. Well, actually, I was hoping you would dwell on it in, okay. in, in, in a certain way. So one of the things that I was curious to hear your opinion on was how, in your view, the United States differs in its attitude towards refugees or opportunities and exceptions for refugees, maybe versus some of the other countries that you worked with recently? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think in terms of immigration as an economic strategy, I think we're seeing countries across Europe and Canada and Australia catch on. Realize, yeah, realize. realize that um, there's only one way kind of out of their current situation, and they may not even like people from other places, but they're going to need to figure out ways to encourage those people to relocate because of labor shortages. Yeah. Um, that's, of course, not not the view that I would most like to see adopted. We don't want immigrants to be widgets or workers or economic tools. Um, they're, they're people and need to be welcomed. As members of society, as human beings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Thank you. So I think that is where the U.S. is falling behind. You know, we saw that the Canada announcement, the 10,000 H-1Bs that filled up a week. We certainly night. <laughs> We certainly, you know. I did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the U.S. is encouraging people to move here for student visas. I think that remains an attractive option for, for some people, um, but has not... Um, been able to change our, our laws in ways that um, encourage those people to stay. Um, and I think even in the student visa categories, we're seeing more and more people go elsewhere. Uh, and I, I think, um, you know, purely from uh, a U.S. policymaker view, if your goal is to remain the most innovative economy, the biggest economy, um, any of those things, then that requires uh, a different view. And of course, from my perspective, we are a richer country when we're welcoming people. Um, you know, my my life is richer for knowing people um, who weren't born in South Bend, Indiana. And my community is richer in all sorts of ways for having people with all sorts of different perspectives, um, including in leadership. You know, my congresswoman, I live in Minneapolis. My congresswoman is uh, a person who has resettled through the U.S. refugee admissions program, Elhan Omar. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I, I think we are falling behind uh, rapidly uh, and urgently um, need action if your only goal, even if your only goal is um, the economic prowess of the United States. So uh, more specifically, if an attorney wants to use their, you know, skills and education to further support refugees. How can the attorney do that? And I think more important, if a company, if an employer wanted to provide employment opportunity to a refugee through your organization, how would the employer be able to do that? Yeah. So um, 
we would love to connect with employers who want to hire. Um, and uh, again, you know, we're not just in the U.S. Um, uh, there, are, uh, a lot of times, there are multinational companies who are interested in hiring in Canada, Australia, Europe, and or the U.S. We're happy to make those connections if the U.S. is not the right place. Our website is talentbeyondboundaries.org. And there is a, a tab for employers to go to. They can fill out a form. Or I'm also happy to share my email if any of you have clients who are interested. You know, you're, you're more than welcome to reach out at bfisher at talentbeyondboundaries.org. If you're interested, if, you know, immigration attorneys have clients that are interested, we're happy to connect as well. We have a team of people who are working with employers and who are happy to, to make those connections and do that brainstorming. You know, law firms and companies obviously also can provide support to the work in, in other ways. Um, but, you know, feel free to reach out. We're always happy to, to be in touch. And then as a as a parting question, if I could ask you, after practicing law for as many years as you have, being in the industry, working in the nonprofit sector while simultaneously engaging on a regular basis with corporate representatives and whatnot, you know, taking all of this kind of international legal experience, what would be your top advice to women who are wanting to begin a career in law? Anyone, any person who's wanting to, you know, begin a career in law just based on things that you've gone through and what you've seen? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is just to take care of yourself. Um, I, I think the biggest thing for all of us, and I think in any space in law school, these are things that are hard is, you know, like we're not much good to ourselves, each other, our families if we haven't slept. Um, so I, I think what I tell my law students, what I really encourage um, my, my staff to do is to, to make sure that we're taking time off, um, make sure that if, um, you know, if, if a job isn't the right job, there's, there's no shame in finding a different job. Um, things like that. Um, and I, I think a huge part of that too, not just like the kind of self-care things um, in the bucket that we now kind of think of self-care as being, but also finding the people who are going to support you along the way, whether those be like, you know, allies um, or, or uh, partners in the work uh, at your employer, but also people outside who you can talk to, who can tell you if you're going crazy, who can be honest with you if they think your work situation is supportive or not. And um, I, I made a mental note to come up with a, a good, um, clever joke in reference to the Barbie movie. Um, but and the, and the monologue that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do that. So, um, I'll you know, if you haven't seen the Barbie movie, there's some good women in the law jokes there as well. Thank you for that um, advice, because, uh, you know, duly noted and I hear you and I agree. I think for us, it does sometimes feel like selfishness and triggers a lot of like female guilt when we put ourselves first but it's the you know age-old analogy you put you know your air mask on before you put it on your kid right because you're no use to someone unless you just take care of yourself on a basic level so I think that that's actually very very good advice and with that we're going to move into our question answer session so we have a question, and it's a good one. There seems to be a big misunderstanding about the economic impact of immigrants, especially with paying taxes. Do you think we need to do better at getting the message out that immigrants are a net positive to the economy? If so, how? So I think there's a, a yes and a no here. I think better about the messaging, yes. Um, uh, but I, I think that's um, 
comes in two ways. One is, you know, highlighting the real stories of the biggest startups of like entrepreneurs in the country. They're overwhelmingly refugees and immigrants or children of refugees and immigrants. At the same time, I think we want to be careful to avoid discussions of people that seem completely sort of instrumental, I guess, um, just considering people for their economic value. So I think it can be true that we, you know, support people to relocate, that we welcome refugees who are fleeing persecution and that when we do so, they provide benefits. So I think getting that message out that there are so many good reasons for us to be welcoming in our communities through our immigration system and that one of them is the economic benefits that people provide. I think absolutely agreed. Another question, a very important question. Do LGBTQ refugees face additional hurdles in relocating or bringing their families because same-sex marriage is still illegal in so many sending countries? Yes, no question. We know that U.S. immigration law since Obergefell has recognized marriages from overseas that include same-sex couples, but that assumes that people are able to get married. So yes, this is a, a huge issue. There's also just so many challenges that people face. LGBTQ refugees might not be registered with UNHCR because they fear that they'll face harassment if they like leave their house and go stand in line to get registered. They might face additional persecution from the government in the country where they're seeking asylum. So there's just so many additional barriers that LGBTQ families um, and individuals face, but you're completely correct that this is a, a big issue through any immigration process, including refugee resettlement. The U.S. does have some policies to facilitate um, same-sex re couples resettling together through the resettlement process, but those would not apply through the employment-based processes. Another question, does talent beyond boundaries help refugees around the world or do you focus on a specific region? How can refugees connect with the organization for help? Yeah, we initially started uh, supporting refugees in the Middle East and um, of the people on the talent catalog, they're still on um, the biggest numbers are from um, Syria, Iraq and Palestinian refugees. However, we're becoming more and more international and we now have staff supporting refugees in Latin America, Southeast Asia and Sunni East Africa as well. And we're working with partner organizations on the ground in all of those regions to support refugees. So basically, if people are in a place where they lack work rights or the ability to become long-term residents, that's uh, sort of the, the scope of, of our, our work. Um, and refugees can connect with TVB at talentbeyondboundaries.org. There's a tab for the talent catalog, which is tctalent.org. I'm actually going to jump in and ask a question of my own because you and I have actually had this conversation in the past, Betsy, but my focus in terms of what I worry about is the increase in environmental refugees. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I'm wondering if you've started to see that or if TBB has dealt with folks displaced more specifically because of environmental disasters as opposed to political ones. Sure. I, th I think what we're seeing is that environment is a major factor, often one of many factors driving displacement already. I think climate has been a factor in displacement from Latin America, from Syria, from all over the world, and that will only increase. You know, we're, we're seeing people displaced within the U.S. Um, because of climate. I think there are really like kind of academically interesting discussions about who's considered a refugee. Certainly, if, if you meet the international definition of a refugee because you're displaced in one of the factors 
is that you are displaced because of climate. The presence of that factor of climate doesn't discount other reasons for your displacement. In other words, like a climate-related element doesn't mean that you aren't a refugee. Um, it also doesn't mean that you are a refugee. Um, but I think in terms of global drivers of displacement, I think we're in the coldest summer of the rest of our lives, right? So I, I think that's only going to continue to grow in scope. And we really don't have the plans or the tools to address the needs of those people. Betsy, I just want to say thank you so much on behalf of everyone at EIG for giving us your time, for sharing your story, your experience, what you do for your profession, and great advice. And also, more importantly, thank you for the work that you do. It's very, very important work. It's you and people like you and organizations like Talent Beyond Boundaries that make things better. And it was a wonderful chat. Wow, Hiba, that was a fascinating interview and really an inspiring one. Thank you so much for bringing Betsy Fisher and her work to the Immigration Nerds podcast. You know, Lauren, thank you. I really, really appreciate the kind words, but I am not deserving of them. I think all thanks to Betsy and Talent Beyond Boundaries for doing the work that they do. It's really, really important for us to be connected with and to highlight people who are really dedicating their lives to doing some good in the world. And to all you nerds out there listening, thank you. As ever, you can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share. And meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.